This episode is sponsored by Angular Dev Summit, coming September 11th through the 18th, 2017. Hi, it's Chuck from devchat.tv. I reached out to some of my friends in the Angular community to put on a completely free, no travel conference for Ruby developers. We have speakers like Rob Wormald, Jeff Welpley, and others coming to speak about all kinds of topics in Angular. So if you're trying to learn Angular or you're trying to level up Angular, come check it out. The talks are happening throughout the day each day and we'll have a chat available during each session. Attending the talks is free, but you need to register. Go to angulardevsummit.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another MyJS story. This week, we're talking to Zach Kesson. Zach, do you want to say hi? Hi. You've been on JavaScript Jabber a couple of times, but not for a while. Do you want to remind everybody who you are? Sure. So I'm Zach. I live in Israel, and I'm a developer and consultant, and I do... On the server side, I do Erlang and Elixir, and on the front end, I do Elm, and I also big on the testing world. And I've been a programmer. I've been working on the World Wide Web since the early 90s, and I've written a couple books for O'Reilly, and I'm currently doing a video course for Manning, which should be available sometime in the fall. Nice. Now, you were on episode 57. Man, that was a while ago, wasn't it? Was Probably. Like four, I don't even remember. Four years ago. Something like that. Yeah. What was it on? I don't even remember. Functional programming. Functional programming, yeah, I'm still big on that. Yep, and then um, you also came on and talked about property-based testing, or quick check, on quick episode che- yeah. 169, and that was about almost two years ago. So it looks like you're about due again. <laughs> okay, well, here years. I am. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, I'm just going to dive in and ask you a bunch of questions about your background in programming. We're probably also going to dig in a little bit on the Erlang and Elixir side, just because I know that's kind of been a focus for you. And, yeah, we'll talk about JavaScript, but we'll also talk about those, because I think it's interesting for people to get exposure to ideas outside of their normal programming paradigm. Oh, I agree. I I always say a programmer who only knows one language is like a carpenter who's only used one kind of wood, you know. Not that I don't squat about carpentry, but yeah, it's always good to learn new languages, even if you're if it's a language that you'll never use in production. I mean, I think yeah. Prolog is really fascinating. I probably never use it in production, but it's really interesting and it makes me think differently, and that's good. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, the first question that I usually ask is, how do you get it? How did you get into programming? Well, when I was seven years old, this is about 1980. I wanted a computer, and my mother said if I could get half the um, money, she'd pay for the other half, and I called every relative I had because, well, I was seven, and we got a Radio Shack color computer, 16 kilobytes of RAM, Woo! and my mother had actually learned to program in Lisp in college back in the late 60s, early 70s, so she taught me basic and logo, and from there on, in high school, I did AP Advanced Placement Computer Science, which in those days was Pascal. Mm-hmm. And then I got to university in the fall of 91, and I got hit with Structure Interpretation of Computer Programs, first semester, great book, highly recommended, Abelson and Sussman, and did Scheme, and you know, went from there. And I remember around that time, sophomore year, I had, freshman year I had access to the internet, but there was no World Wide Web yet. It was FTP and Gopher and right. Archie and Veronica and anybody who's my age or older is suddenly having flashbacks and all you young, <laughs> all you kids out there going, I have no idea what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> and I remember a year or two later, uh, I was had moved off, still in college, but I'd moved off campus and my ro- then roommate and I were sitting in our kitchen and we had figured out how to make a form in HTML 
but we hadn't figured out how to write a CGI script to submit it yet. So we're like, we have this form, but we don't know what to do with it. Uh-huh. And then I left college and started working and worked through most of the 90s, lost my job after 9-11, went back to finish college, somewhere in there, moved from the States to Israel, been coding, you know, wrote a couple books, been coding ever since. Good deal. I'm curious because a lot of people, you know, they feel like, well, I didn't have the opportunity of learning to program when I was a kid. So, you know, I just, I don't know if I'm cut out for it now. And uh, I, I think the the lesson that I'm getting from this is mostly just if you're interested in it and you're tenacious enough to, you know, go ask all of your family to pitch in for a computer, you know. Yeah, and especially since nowadays... You know, I mean, in 1980, having a computer was a big deal. It was mm-hmm. unusual. In 2017, having a couple of computers in your house is normal. I mean, just sitting here in, in my apartment, in addition to the laptop I'm sitting on now, my wife's on one computer. There's a computer in the kids' room. And I have a desktop at, at WeWork uh, as well. And I think I just... Oh, and of course, three or four cell phones and a few digital cameras floating right. around. So... You know, having access to a computer is trivial and, you know, you can code perfectly well even on a somewhat old machine. And, you know, there's some great books out there for free. You know, so if you, even if you have like almost no money, you know, you can scrounge together a used system, throw Linux on it, get access, get online somehow. And, you know, there's some good books. So, you know, there are resources out there that, you know, when I started, there was no internet. Well, I mean, technically the internet existed, but I sure wasn't. Didn't know about it. I was a little kid. We didn't even have, we didn't even have dial up in those days. Right. You know, you, you had a magazine and you typed stuff in. Um, oh, the bad old days. <laughs> well, and you're talking 1980. I was born in 79, so I wasn't, yeah, even, yeah, yeah. I wasn't even a year old yet when, when yeah, you know. You know we 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 got printouts in magazines and we typed them in and we liked it. Sorry, to Monty Python sketch here. No, seriously, it is actually a great time to be a developer. There's lots of and to learn because there are lots of great resources, both on the information side and also just some of the new languages today are so great for you know they will tell you every you know mistake you make. And also to say one more thing to new developers out there or any developer, if you're a programmer or a wannabe programmer. Give it if you want to be a programmer. Give it a try. If you love it, awesome. And if you know you have those days where you you just want to cry and everything you touch seems to catch on fire, don't worry. Even after twenty some years in the business, you still will have those. Yep. It doesn't mean you're a horrible programmer. It certainly doesn't mean you're a horrible person. It just means you're having a bad day. And you know they suck, but you get you know. But I also say that if you try programming and you just look over, you hate it. You know, please don't feel compelled to do it just because somebody told you you should. Go find a job, a profession you will love. Yep, absolutely. You know, I want people in this profession who actually. I, we need all the smart, interesting people we can find in this profession, but we also need people who will actually enjoy their jobs. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So the next question I usually ask is, how did you get into JavaScript? But I know that you've done a lot of work in Erlang, so I'm kind of curious to hear both. Okay. Well, I got into JavaScript. Well, I got into the web before JavaScript existed, and I remember the first JavaScript app I saw was a like a loan calculator on a bank website. You know, uh-huh. if I save five hundred dollars a month for three years at two percent interest, how much money will I have? And so JavaScript, I was doing web stuff originally in Perl, 
and then later in other languages. And so, you know, JavaScript was part of it. In the early days, we didn't have the DOM. There was no AJAX. So we just sort of, you know, really all you could do was validate forms badly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it grew. And then I was working at a company uh, in Tel the Tel Aviv area. And I was doing PHP. And I just did not like PHP. It's just not beautiful. You know, it's a functional language, functional, functional lowercase f, that is. You know, it is a, it's a language you can do things in. People get build stuff in PHP. Uh -huh. And if you are building stuff in PHP and delivering value, awesome, go, you know, power to you. But it's not a, an elegant language. It's not a beautiful language. And I said, so there's got to be something better than this. So I went looking and I first encountered functional programming in university with Scheme. And I loved that. And I looked at a bunch of languages. I looked at, I don't think Clojure was really a thing yet at that point. It was just sort of breaking out to scene. I looked at Haskell. I looked at Scala. Um, and then I looked at Erlang, and I'm like, ooh, this is exactly what I want. Erlang, if you're not familiar with it, was a language invented in the late 80s uh, by a bunch of guys at uh, Ericsson in Stockholm, Sweden, uh -huh. to program the works of telephone switches. I know you've had Francesco Cesarini on JavaScript Jabber at some point. Yep. You should maybe put a link to that episode. And, you know, so it has all the things you'd want to program a telephone switch. You know, it can handle high scale. You know, a telephone switch that can handle only 10,000 concurrent users isn't a useful product. You know, it has high reliability because when Ericsson sells the phone company one of those things, there's a language of the contract that says if it's down more than four minutes a year, they pay a penalty. So it's like all that. Uh, it's got to be upgraded on the fly. You know, you can't say, well, we're going to take half the city's telephone service offline for an hour while we upgrade, fix a couple bugs. You know, that just doesn't work. Uh -huh. And they solved all these problems. And the telecom guys solved all these problems in a very high stress production environment. And then kind of was like, oh, look, a web server in 2010, 2017, turns out structurally looks a lot like a telephone switch in 1992. Oh, and look, the problems are already solved. Erlang, the language, some people dislike the syntax, doesn't bother me, but, you know, whatever. It's a fairly simple language. It's very straightforward how you use it. And it just lets you do things in a very straightforward manner. On the other hand, have high scale. The Phoenix web server, which runs uh, in the Elixir language on the Erlang virtual machine, a couple of years ago they did a test, and we're able to get two million concurrent web sockets on one server. Wow. Yeah, I mean that's you know the top whatever AWS's biggest server size is. I don't know what that is, or was at the time, but you know you can get a sense of the scale that you could work on this stuff. Uh -huh. And then you, you know, the Erlang world, the Erlang world is you have, you know, you go to an Erlang conference. And you'll discover that you know most of the people there are practitioners who are working in, in industry in places like Basho or Bet365 or uh -huh. um, William Hill or other companies that you know have to handle high scale systems. But then you have a smattering of people who are university professors who are researching things like how do we validate Erlang code better or how do we do do things like make Erlang run on these new Xeon feed chips that have 256 hardware threads or some 270 hardware threads. Right. You know, because these things are common. You know, Intel's newest regular Xeon has, what, 28th cores, you know, with two threads each. So, you know, how do you, how do you handle that? How do you code for that? I wouldn't want to do it in any language that wasn't Erlang or Elixir. Mm -hmm. uh, Elixir is another language that runs on the same runtime. So 95% of what you can say about Erlang is also true for Elixir. On the flip side, Elixir has a much more Ruby-like syntax and some metaprogramming than Erlang. It's not quite so easy to do in Erlang. But fundamentally, the, the, the runtime performance is the same thing.
So that's how I got into those. And then about two years ago, or a year and a half ago, whatever it was, I was going to do some front-end stuff, and I'd been using CoffeeScript, which is a vague improvement on JavaScript at the time. But vague is the right word. And I just wasn't happy with it. I was like, there's got to be a better way. And I heard about uh, the Elm language, which I believe you've also had on the show. You've also had that on the show, right? And I met Evan Sislicki at a conference in London, and he sat down with me for a day and taught me how to use Elm. And I'm like, ooh, this thing is great. Um, it just like finds every possible error I could possibly have is found at compile time, and it tells me exactly how to fix it. Um, and you know, since I've been around long enough to know that I I will make every possible error, it's nice to know I have something that catches it for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's the you know when you're a junior programmer, you think you know everything. When you're a senior programmer, you know better. So you know, and so I've been doing a lot with Elm, and it's a great language. So that's how I got into these things. And I'm just looking around, always looking around for new tech. You know, what's new? What's interesting? You know, what what combines the, the sweet spot of, you know, it's building on the academic theory and, you know, really pushing the boundaries on the other hand. Also, within the realm of this is actually something that's usable in product, you know, usable in production. Uh, I've tried Haskell and I'm, other people love it. I was not a fan. I just found it too, uh, the mental load too much. <laughs> uh, I've heard a few no people say that. Yeah. You know, Haskell loves abstraction for the sake of abstraction in a way that occasionally breaks my brain, you know, and Elm has some of that, but much less. And Elm, the Elm language admittedly does have a lot of, a lot more boilerplate than some languages, but it also makes reading the language much easier because you don't have to try to figure out what the hell's going on. Right. You know, it says it right there. You can just read it. Sometimes I feel like there's some languages and Haskell's definitely this category that it's like you get you get a bill for you get billed a dollar for every extra character you use when you're coding it. Uh-huh. And um you know, yeah, terse code is nice, but there are but it's not the only nice thing. You know. Yep. You know, so, I wouldn't be able to read it six months later. So yeah, it it's really interesting too. I I know that there's a big functional movement in JavaScript. And uh, you know, you see people using things like closure script. Or even just, you know, trying to do straight up functional programming with just regular JavaScript and avoiding a lot of the other parts that either have side effects or, you know, they, they use immutable JS. And anyway, it, it's just interesting to see how this has all gone. And uh, to use a language that's fully functional, I, I think that's just an interesting paradigm that the people could benefit yeah. from and just see, oh, okay, I see these benefits from this, be it performance or concurrency like you've talked about with Erlang or something else. Yeah, no, it's true. The, you know, uh, and like I said, I, learning new languages informs the way you think. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, ooh, you know, in this language you solve the problem this way. So, you know, you have lots of things that are influencing each other. If you read some of the stuff Evan, who created Elm, has written, he will flat out state that certain features were stolen from Elixir and F-sharp and Haskell and mm -hmm. OCaml, wherever else. And conversely, I've seen heard other languages state that they're looking at Elm's error messages and stealing those because if you haven't tried Elm, one thing you will discover very quickly about it, it has the best error messages I have ever seen in any languages in 25 years of development. It will tell you exactly what you did wrong and exactly how to fix it most of the time. So you just get this error message and it's like, oh, okay, I know what to do now. Fix it. 10 seconds later, you're done. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah. I, you'll never see undefined is not a function or, you know, anything like that. It's, you know, these, the null pointer error is, uh, 
well, Sir Tony Hoare, who created the null pointer in Algol back in the 60s, uh, referred to it as his billion-dollar mistake. That might be an understatement. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really nice language. Uh, it's nice to know that people in the academic world are thinking about this stuff really hard and doing research and that mm-hmm. those of us in industry can benefit considering that, you know, our tax money, somewhere along the line, paid for some of it at least, depending on which country you live in and which academic, you know, whether or not. But, you know, yep. you know, it's not just theoretical stuff that they teach undergrads. It's actually useful sometimes. So, yeah, absolutely. So I, I want to kind of move on to your contributions. Where do you think sure. you've contributed to the development community? I know I'll call one out. You had a podcast called Mostly Erling. Um, yes, I did. I had a podcast. I wrote two books for O'Reilly, uh, one on HTML5, which is horribly out of date now, and one on Erlang, which is also somewhat five years out of date. I've done some blogging, although not very consistently. I'm doing a video course called Startup Elm for Manning it should be at this point. It's in the phase of I have finished the outline and I'm going to start recording in a few days as we record this. So I've written a few ebooks here and there. So I'm much more in the role of somebody who teaches and talks about stuff than somebody who's a library author. Uh-huh. I've given a lot of talks. I don't have the patience, I think, or the sustainability to do, you know, create a library and maintain it over years and years and years. I admire people who do that and we need them but that's just not not me right and so you know i don't try to force it to be me i do other things i teach about it i explain it and you know let other people do the develop do the uh, library development and we you know we need good library developers mm-hmm. but we also need good communicators cuz if you can't understand it if you can't figure it out i mean the library is useless yep well and it's it's interesting. I mean, I've talked to several people now for between all of the my Ruby story, my JavaScript story, my Angular story, because I'm doing all of these. And, you know, I've had a few people on and they're like, you know, I just I haven't really done a whole lot with open source. And I'm just sitting there going, you've made like a gazillion videos, right? Or, you know, you were kind of the blog post that everybody went to for years and years in your community. And it's, you know, to me, it's like, you know what? Not all contributions have to be the open source thing. You know, the books are helpful. The the podcasts are helpful. Gives people ideas on how they can handle things. It's fascinating just to see, you know, yeah, we need these teachers and people out there in the community who are willing to, you know, give their time. I know that books aren't super lucrative. I don't know about video courses with Manning, but... Oh, yeah. I'm hoping. It's, it's fairly new to them, so I'll see. Yeah. It's... You know, also the fact I've talked, spoken at conferences, I've spoke, I arranged a conference once. Uh huh. I've spoken at meetups, all this stuff. And, you know, if you're, I'm going to be talking about this at Newbie Remote Conf, so uh, go sign up and you can see my, my talk. You know, it's a great way to level up your career giving a talk because you have a way, a chance to impress a room full of people that you're really smart and know something inter- and a good communicator. And, you know, if you don't want to be in front of the camera, you can also, there are lots of, you know, if you don't want to be the guy or the, the band of the woman up there giving the talk, maybe you're just not comfortable, show up early and help set up the room. Mm-hmm. You know, always need somebody to do that. And there are lots of ways to contribute to this community. And if you haven't found one you like, keep looking or just invent one. Yep, absolutely. 
Well, and it's it's so interesting. Just it was in apprenticeship patterns. I interviewed Dave Hoover way back in the day. He he's in, in the Ruby community when I knew him. Um, I don't know who he is. <laughs> yeah, he called it sweeping the dojo floor. And yeah, so yeah, I've heard that term. It was essentially, you know, so you don't feel like you can contribute code to an open source project. You don't feel like you can be the expert speaking at, you know, whatever, but you can write the documentation. You can, you understand enough to, you know, put some blog posts or maybe a, a video out there on the basics of it, of the thing. And he's like, that's enough, you know, and then people notice. One other anecdote that I'll throw out there is that when I was contracting, I spoke at RubyConf and RailsConf a few times. And every time I did it, I had people come to me and say, hey, we'd like to hire you to work on our Ruby app. And it wasn't anything that I had spoken about. It was just the fact that I was on the speakers list. Yeah, yeah. It gives somebody an excuse to talk to you. I mean, I gave a talk a couple of years ago on functional programming JavaScript. This is oh, years ago now. And at the end of it, I just sort of casually said, oh, I'm looking for a job. And a couple of days later, I got a phone call from a major company that I didn't even know had a branch in Israel. Mm-hmm. And they brought me in for an interview. And they ended up hiring me. They didn't end up staying very long, but that's another story. Um, it wasn't a great fit. Certainly, if you're going to give a talk, there's nothing wrong with throwing a little call to action in at the end. And I'm looking for a job is a good one. Yep. And if you don't have anything to talk about, if you don't have a topic of your own, one thing I did in university, I was required for some course to give a presentation. And I went and read a bunch of research papers and presented one of those. So, you know, go see who, if you got a university near you, and I suspect most people do somewhere, go see who in that university is doing interesting research and or just, you know, go online and look, start Googling stuff. Because there's a lot of research stuff that most people in the in the non-academic world, i.e. those of us who are coding, coding in a company for a living somewhere, have no clue exists. And some of it's probably really interesting and some of it's probably pretty useful. Go read a bunch of papers on some topic and talk about it. Even if, you know, it's stuff that most people will never use in their day job. So what? You know, make it, tell a good story, make it interesting, explain what the use of it is, and you'll have a good talk. Yep. You know, that's perfectly valid. So... Also, when you're giving a talk, giving away much of my uh, newbie remote kind of talk here, but that's besides the point. Don't feel the need to squeeze as much stuff in as possible. Feel the need to cut as – please cut cut vigorously. At the end of a good talk, I want to go home and do some reading. Uh-huh. You know, I want it to make me go say, ooh, this Elm thing sounds really interesting. What? You mean I can write a web app and have zero runtime errors and be able to replay exactly what my tester did? That's awesome. Let me go find out more. You know, I can't teach you everything to there is to know about a language uh-huh. in 45 minutes. Not doable. I can tell you enough about some topic to say, make you think, oh, that's interesting. I should go read more. Or that's interesting, but it's in a field I don't have anything to do with. You know, mm-hmm. you know, you could give a talk on you know, how to use F sharp for mobile development. You think, okay, that's neat, but I don't do mobile development. Right. So, you know, whatever. But, you know, you sort of file the back of the back of your line and someday you have to do mobile development and you go pick it up or not. You know, so all of these are possibilities. Get out there, do something, sweep the dojo floor, and uh, also, by the way, m- many meetups in my experience are desperate for people to come and present. Oh yeah, well, and just to add to that, a lot of people are new, and a lot of the meetups that I've gone to, they're not just desperate for people to present, but they love having new people speak about topics that are interesting or helpful to n- other new people. 
right because I mean, it brings that, people in it makes it approachable for for new programmers and yeah i mean even if it's only a five minute talk on something pretty basic it, it it's very helpful oh yeah the other thing is that in many communities especially some of the smaller ones like elm the elm community or the airline community it's certainly possible that, you know, as you look at the schedules of conferences year after year after year, after year you see largely the same group of people presenting every year. Uh-huh. No, you know, no complaints about the specific people in question because I'm thinking of a list of people who are both Elm and Erlang. In general, they're, they're awesome speakers. They're very interesting. I like hearing from them. But, you know, nice to hear from some new people. Yep. I at one point proposed a rule to the moderator of – to the organizer of some conference – I mean, it was a joke, but only sort of, that says, after you presented at this conference for two or three years, you're not allowed to present again until you mentor a new speaker just presenting at the conference. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that um, would be interesting. I mean, I, mean, I, I didn't, I, it was sort of mostly a joke, but, but, you know, I mean, it's like you look at these conferences and it's just like the same speakers year and year, year and year in. And, okay. you know, yeah, okay, Uncle Bob is a great speaker and he does, does interesting stuff and, you know, or Francesco Cesarini in the airline community, or Evan Sislicki in the Elm community, or whoever. These people are all great speakers. They say they, they have interesting things to say, and I highly recommend all their talks. But, you know, it's nice to hear from some new people. And let me just give one more tip to new speakers. If you're a little bit nervous, practice it. But also find somebody who's a more senior presenter. And if you're a student, one of your teachers who is a good lecturer, is a good person to talk to. And get them to give you help, because... Speaking is a skill. You get better at it with practice. You know, I guarantee you that lecturer up there who's, you know, being paid a lot of money to give that talk, the first time he, he or she gave a public talk, it was probably horrible. <laughs> yes. That was true in my case. Oh, yeah, mine too. You know, but don't let that stop you. Um, you know, you can always improve, you know, rehearse, present it to your friends, yep. present it to a user. You know, if you're going to go speak at a big conference, give it at your local user group first. Or, you know, if you're working at a company, give it over lunch to your co your coworkers, then give it a user group, then give it at the big conference. You know, but you you, you can then see, you know, as you're watching people, oh, yeah, this is the point where everybody has that confused look on their face and maybe I'll rewrite this bit. Yeah. Um, it's perfectly valid, by the way, to give the same talk m many times, just not in the same, you know, at different location user groups. It's perfectly okay. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, I want to see interesting people. I want to see... To all your new developers out there, I'm looking forward to the to a conference two two or three years from now where you give that talk that blows me off my feet, which I'll probably be watching three months later on YouTube. But yep, <laughs> I don't depending on where in the world you gave the talk. And by the way, if English is not your first language, there are plenty of places depending on what country you're in where you can probably give a talk in your native language if that makes you more comfortable. You know, when I was organizing. So the city in Israel where I live, Beersheba, we tried to organize an Erlang factory light here a couple summers ago. And we, I think we're going to have some talks in English and some in Hebrew because some of the people we approached to speak were just like, I'm not comfortable enough to speak in English. Unfortunately, the conference never happened because um, that was the summer the war broke out and mm -hmm. Beersheba was getting multiple air raid sirens a day. And, you know, we would have really had to have the, you know, in case of emergency, please do not tweet until you're in the bomb shelter slide. And actually meant it not as a joke. Oh, man. So so, so my next uh, question is, what are you working on now? Obviously, you're working on this talk, but are there other things you're working on? You know? Yeah, so I've got, I've got a whole list of things I'm working on. I'm working on Startup Elm, which is that video course for Manning. I've got a live version of that course happening, hopefully, through um, Skills Matter in London in October. Uh-huh. 
I have a SaaS product for Instagram market to find micro influencers on Instagram, which I'm re- revitalizing called uh, Square Target. You can find that through my webpage, which is uh, get getfinch.com. I'll need the or Chuck also need the URL. Uh-huh. Let's see, and I, and I have a a day job doing some coding for some folks. So yeah, I'm not busy. <laughs> Well, if you're not so, busy, yeah. then you're, or if you're busy, you're not getting bored, right? Yeah, I'm definitely not getting bored. So yeah, that's what I'm doing. Um, nice. Well, then the last thing that we're going to get to here is picks. Have you ever felt like you're falling behind or that the programming world is moving so fast that it's impossible to keep up? Then there's the issue of where to go to make sure you're up to date. The answer is to join a community dedicated to discussing the latest in JavaScript. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if you got JavaScript Jabber all day? Well, you can, kind of. We've created a Slack community for JavaScript Jabber. That means that you can connect with our listeners and guests on a platform you're most likely already using. Plus, we've set up a Keeping Current channel that pulls stories from across the web to help you know what people are talking about. And coming soon, we'll be holding monthly webinars and roundtable video chats to connect with experts in the community and with each other. So come join us at javascriptjabber.com slash slack. Do you have some picks you want to, things you want to shout out about? Yeah, so there's something I've been a product I've been wanting to buy, and I probably will eventually. It's the um, Intrepid Camera. Um, it's a company out of the UK. They just ran a Kickstarter, so they make a four by five large format camera, mm-hmm. and they just ran a Kickstarter and to make an eight by ten camera. Now, if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, this is think one of the old fashioned cameras with the bellows and the guy under the hood. Uh-huh. That's a large format camera, but turns out there's kind of a renaissance going on in that space these days. And they were, tried to raise 18,000 pounds for their Kickstarter. Apparently, they outsold that goal in 12 minutes. Wow. Yeah, they're up to 151,000 and change now as of when we're recording this with 11 days to go. And it's two guys in Brighton in the UK. And this is a, you know, wood cam- basically an old-fashioned wood camera. And it's lovely, and I want one desperately. I want one, and eventually I will buy one once a few of these businesses take off. And I just sent you the link, Chuck. So yeah, that's my pick. Go nice. be, go be analog. Yeah, that and the stuff I'm working on. All right, I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks. We've talked a lot about speaking. One of the things that really helps me with speaking is Toastmasters. Toastmasters International. You go to Toastmasters.com and check it out. If you're in the Salt Lake City area, you may as well check out the local club that I'm a member of. I am finishing up my term as VP of PR, and uh, next year I'm going to be the VP of membership in my local club, and that is at LonePeakToastmasters.com. And yeah, we meet every Thursday morning at 7 a.m., and uh, yeah, just terrific group of people, and I have a good time. But basically, I'll just give a rundown here. They give you two manuals when you sign up as a member. Uh, The first one is the Competent Communicator Manual, and so you go through... 10 talks. So the first one's the icebreaker where you just introduce yourself. The second one, I think you organize the talk. Anyway, so you go through all of these. I think another one's vocal variety. So you, you know, you vary your loudness and softness and tone of voice and things like that. Anyway, it's just a terrific place where you can go and learn how to speak. And they help you with things like starting sentences with and like I've done about four times my sin over there is and so I say and so in all of my talks all the time but yeah it's super helpful and I really really enjoy it so I'm gonna pick that one other thing that I'm gonna pick really quickly is I set up a slack bot 
and I used Zapier to set it up. And essentially what it does is it goes out to several resources on the web for JavaScript stuff, and it pulls that stuff into a Slack channel for me so that I can keep up on things. And it's been really, really helpful. So I'm going to go ahead and pick that. If you want what I have set up, you can get it. You just go to javascriptjabber.com slash Slack. It costs $10 a month. I'm trying to create more of an online community with it where people actually have the opportunity to come and hear other folks speak about JavaScript as well as I'm going to bring in some experts. And that's actually what I'm going to spend the money on. So uh, your $10 a month essentially goes to paying speaking fees for you know top people in the community. But it's also a place where you can chat. I'm hoping to do some roundtable online chats, sort of like Google Hangouts, and uh, just give people a chance to get to know each other and talk to each other and see each other. Because I feel like that kind of interaction isn't available to everybody, and I would like it to be. So that's what's what I've got going on there. And of course, there is the Keeping Current channel. So uh, definitely check that out. And those are my picks. Go Hold ahead. on. I just want to add two more quick things. So first of all, you mentioned Zapier. I love Zapier. It's great. If anybody's out there is looking for a business, helping small businesses organize, automate themselves with Zapier would probably work great. If it mm-hmm. works, let me send me a postcard. Let me know. <laughs> and third of all, I want to pick just the city of Beersheba, Israel, where I live, because it's really nice, and we like it here. Um, so, yeah. Good deal. Thanks, Joe. Now, Zach, if, they want, if people want to find you, hire you, uh, you know, learn about Erlang from you. Uh, do you tweet? Are you on GitHub? Um, blog? What? I, where do they go? I have a blog. It's get-finch.com. I sent you the URL. Um, I do do training courses on Erlang and Elm, as well as testing JavaScript with QuickCheck and some other stuff at Elixir. So, yeah, I do training courses on that. Feel free to contact me. And I blog, at least occasionally. And currently, most of my tweets are hating on my car insurance company for today. <laughs> oh, we all go through that with somebody, don't we? <sighs> it's especially fun when you don't actually speak the language well of the country you live in. Let me just say. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up and we'll catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.